Hello and welcome to the Nutrition with Rebecca podcast. This podcast is designed to empower you with the knowledge to live a healthy and happy life. My ethos is sustainability and my aim is to leave you better than I found you. I am a complete foodie, lover of all animals, recovering perfectionist, with a passion to help many achieve a life of health and well-being. I hope you take a lot from this podcast and thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you. Hello everyone. Um, welcome to another episode of the podcast. Today is amazing. I am thrilled to be joined by Dr. And I am going to say Dr. We just had a little intro and he's like, less of the doctor. I was like, no. <laughs> Dr. Richie Carwin on the podcast. Dr. Richie has a PhD, I believe, in clinical nutrition, is a university lecturer, currently in exercise physiology at, Uni- at Liverpool a podcast host, a science researcher, and a fountain of knowledge and a coach. I first met Richie at Level Up, an event ran by EIQ in April, and honestly, I was completely blown away by the content delivered. Richie spoke at great length about heart health, muscle mass, and the impact on our health long-term. And I think This is an area that isn't spoken about enough and it needs to be spoken about more so, especially when we're considering our actions associated with potentially dieting, um, exercise and nutrition for the longevity of our well-being. So thank you so much, Richie, and welcome. Did I miss anything as well then? Did I get it all right? Um, I've got a nice accent, maybe. (laughs) Most people compliment me on the Irish one and I just tell them I've been working on it for years, so... Um. I quite like the Irish accent though. I think it's great. It's it's all right. Um, if I'm talking at full speed, I do notice that everybody has a lot of trouble gathering what I'm saying. So I, I tend to tone things down when I'm talking to anybody who's not from back home. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So you thank, thank you for the lovely intro. Um, and yeah, you're you're far too uh, generous with everything you said. But thank you. No, 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 no. So like I said, the main reason I wanted to chat to you was to unpick further the benefits to muscle mass for our for our health long term in both males and females because I know for male uh, for females in particular there has been this assumption that muscle mass makes you bulky and one of the things that I picked up at level up was you mentioned people with the most muscle mass have 81% lower risk of developing heart disease compared to those with least muscle mhm that's very very true yeah um and uh, I I think <clears throat> that whole relationship between muscle and and heart disease is just something that people aren't particularly aware of because I think we're all very, very much, when it comes to exercise anyway, we're all very, very much aware of the the benefits of cardio for for heart health and for for health in general. Um, So yeah, it's it's something that I'm really particularly interested in and um, yeah, I like talking about. So hopefully we'll get to get into into it in some detail here. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So in terms of muscle mass, then what are the benefits to our health outcomes long term? So in in terms of outcomes, I think one of the probably what I consider to be one of the most important aspects is uh, quality of life. And whenever I I mention quality of life, uh, a lot of people kind of tend to to roll their eyes because no young people, no young person really, really thinks about what their quality of life is going to be or how it's going to change. 
as they get older. We all assume, or it's not necessarily that we assume, but we just don't even bother thinking about what we're going to be like in, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And what can happen and, and what does happen to quite a few older people is that you get the development of frailty. And frailty, again, is something people don't think about. But basically, the, the easiest way to kind of describe it, and, and, and I'm saying the easiest way to describe it because there's actually no consensus definition for what frailty is. Um, the easiest way to describe it is just a loss of ability to carry out many of your normal day-to-day -day activities. So like if you think about uh, waking up in the morning and having trouble getting out of your bed or you know, walking up or down the stairs, picking up your grandkids, bending down to, to pick something off the floor, uh, carrying your groceries home, all of those things. We take all of those actions completely for granted. granted. And uh, it's, it's, it's almost incomprehensible for some people to, to, to think of a, a life where those things are difficult. But for some older adults, that is very much the case. And a lot of frailty is due to um, uh, poor muscle quality and a lack of muscle strength as, as we get older. Yeah, absolutely. So what do you think is is potentially a barrier for people in terms of acknowledging that long uh, longevity of the impacts like muscle mass has on you? Like, what do you think stops people from thinking about that long term? Uh, to, be, to be honest, I think most of us these days are very, very much concerned with the here and now. And it, it's uh, like humans in general, we're very, very poor at kind of putting things aside for the future. And, and we see that in terms of health. We see that in terms of our, you know, what we do financially as well. You know, we're, we're not great at saving for the future. Um, and it's kind of hard to think about, okay, what I'm doing right now is going to affect how I'm going to be in 50 years time. Um, like it's, it's almost absurd to think of so far into the future. But I think we have to start thinking that way because the way we grow as children and the way we develop as adults and progress into later life, it, the way we live that life is going to be vitally essential for how we age in terms of uh, developing muscle mass, eating well, exercising, all of those behaviors that we really need to, to, to do. And I think just to kind of get back to your original question, it's we, we can't really defer the, the outcome or we can't defer the, 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 um, the prize that we get at the end of this, right? The, the prize that we get at the end of this is when we're 80 years old, we're able to walk around and we're able to hopefully, you know, still do exercise by ourselves and we're living alone and we're completely, not, not alone, but we're living independently, excuse me. Um, and we're just living, what a better word, we're living our best lives as 80, 90 year olds or even more. Yeah, thriving as best exactly. as you can in that capacity do you think diet culture plays into some of the living too much in the present moment in the instant gratification world of like the thinner ideal and therefore people aren't potentially thinking about the longevity and the long-term impact do you know it's it's not something i've i've thought about in this context um but now that you say it it, it is something that could potentially play a role and, and there's, i think there's two different ways of looking at it. So you've got, let's say your, um, and let, let's talk about kind of traditional dieting. And when I say traditional dieting, I'm talking about dieting from like the 80s, 90s, yeah. um, maybe early 2000s, where the goal was just lose weight, be thin. Okay. Um, and that, we we know that that kind of like, let's say chronic cycling, uh, weight cycling that people can go through with with yo-yo dieting, we do know that that leads to actually a, a reduction in muscle mass over time because people go through these these phases where they're just losing weight 
they're not really pushed about like um you know improving body composition um because and they're not maintaining muscle so they lose muscle over time they don't regain that muscle but it's very easy to regain that body fat and you've got this terrible cycle where people are just kind of getting a little bit fatter and just a little bit less muscles over time but then you've got this other group of people <clears throat> which is I say it's becoming bigger, but in terms of the whole population, it's absolutely tiny. I just think like uh, yourself and myself, because we're, we're involved in this industry, we're, we're very, very aware of it. But we've got people who go to the gym and they want to get bigger and stronger. And I will say that obviously there's a huge aesthetic um, element to what they're doing. People want to look better and that's why they're lifting these weights. But I will say that they are also really setting themselves up for a healthier future by developing these weights as long as they do it in you know a healthy sustainable manner absolutely um and do you think with the the former of the two that you just mentioned then there was that association with just cardio which then is perhaps impacting the ability to build muscle mass and then having greater impacts later on in life yeah absolutely like so if people are focused on on weight loss you know we we have the uh let's say the whole cardio body mentality people were just kind of going in you know, going on relatively, going into the gym, just doing a load of cardio on relatively low calorie diets, losing weight. And when you lose weight like that, you're, you're going to lose a, a decent amount of muscle mass. Um, whereas if, you know, you're kind of going by the evidence-based principles that like, you know, a lot of people use these days, you're maintaining muscle mass as people lose weight. Um, and it, it is a very, very serious dichotomy. Like, you know, what people used to do for dieting and, and to be honest what people some people still do for dieting is ridiculous um you know it, it, it it's it's just focused on a number on the scales um and it is detrimental for for long-term health in my opinion absolutely completely agree with you and what we still see now and what i see with a lot of um clients who on board is unfortunately the association of one's phenotype and their health so if you're carrying perhaps um smaller uh, you're in a smaller body then you're automatically perceived as being healthier but that doesn't potentially show us how much muscle mass so how does muscle mass correlate in terms of somebody who's potentially carrying higher body fat is that still equally as beneficial for you long term so there was a really interesting study that came out um, uh, about two or three years ago. I cannot remember for the life of me the, the author's uh, name. But uh, basically what it did is it correlated two things independently. It correlated muscle mass index and fat mass index. So it wanted to see what was what were the benefits. And basically what it found was that as muscle increased in general, you saw an improvement in longevity and uh, kind of a reduction of chronic diseases. <clears throat> with uh, uh, body fat, you saw there's a uh, kind of a U-shape, what's called a U-shaped curve. You saw kind of a sweet spot in the middle. Um, and what that means is that there's a point in body fat uh, in the population that seems to be kind of optimal for health. If that body fat level starts going up, and that's not talking about body weight or BMI, that's body fat exclusively, we see, you know, a, an awful lot of um, health implications and on the opposite end of the scale when body fat started getting really really low we also saw some very very serious health implications as well and we understand that we, we need body fat to to function properly as human beings and it's only let, let's say um uh, like elite uh bodybuilding yeah. athletes who really get to those low levels and they don't normally maintain them for very very long so yeah um independently muscle mass is beneficial and if somebody is 
in a bigger body and they've got a lot of muscle mass that's there because of, uh, let's say, healthy activity, they are going to be healthier than somebody who has lower levels of uh, muscle mass. But to a point, if, if somebody's like, because we know the, the, let's say, the metabolic effects of excess body fat, that's only to a certain point and there will come a point where the excess negative effects of body fat may um, kind of lead to an overall decrement in health. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it's right to acknowledge that really muscle mass is a protective measure of health. But in one of the recent posts that you've acknowledged and you've put on your your page, it was really interesting about muscle strength and muscle size. Mm. So, yeah. So when I talk about muscle, so I think like just just kind of for, for anybody who's not familiar, I one of the major aspects of my research is something called sarcopenia. And sarcopenia is the loss of muscle as we get older. Um, and it happens to everybody. We can do things with our lifestyle and diet that can reduce that loss of muscle as we get older. But it's generally when we think of sarcopenia, we often say it's a loss of muscle size and function. In general, we're talking about muscle size. But there's another condition known as dynapenia, which is a loss of muscle strength, which also occurs as we age. And it actually occurs at a greater and faster rate than um, uh, than sarcopenia itself. And we, we know that measuring somebody's strength is probably a, a more accurate predictor of their longevity and their risk of chronic diseases than measuring somebody's muscle mass. And, and there's reasons for that. So <clears throat> I think if, uh, for anybody who's kind of familiar with the research, we, we measure uh, muscle mass with, now there's a few different techniques, but some of the most common ones are, one is bi, uh, bioimpedance analysis, BIA, which uses um, an electric current to, to measure our body composition. Um, and the other one is something called DEXA, which is dual energy X-ray absorptiometry, which is a really, really accurate technique. But the, only, the problem with that is, is it gives us a general idea of the size and weight of large pieces of tissue. So I can say that this person's muscle, let's say their muscle in their leg is about this size. Okay, it's, you know, let's say there's 11 kilos of muscle in that leg, quite a big leg. Um, uh, but the problem is it doesn't give us any details of what's going on inside that muscle. Now, there's another technique for measuring body composition, which is called MRI. And magnetic resonance imaging is a very accurate technique because what it does is it gives us a basically a uh, cut through the muscle and it allows us to look at every single aspect of the muscle as we go through it and we can pick out different things. So you might have a, let's say a relatively large muscle in let's say a relatively large individual. Mm -hmm. um, and you might say, okay, they've got a big amount of muscle mass, that's fantastic. But if you look at it through an MRI, you might see, say, let's say for example, this person is someone who doesn't do exercise, they're relatively, um, they've got a bit of overweight, they've got some excess body fat. If you cut through that muscle, you might see that there's pockets or ribbons of fat going through it. And you might see that there's ribbons of connective tissue going through it. And what that, what we call fat infiltration or connective tissue infiltration, what that does is it actually inhibits some of the ability of the mus muscle to contract. And that means that that muscle is not as strong. So an easy way to measure that quality is by looking at somebody's strength. And you can have somebody who's got a smaller muscle, but if it's very, very strong, we know that that muscle is quite healthy. Um, so that's why I think strength is probably an even better indicator of long-term health than looking at muscle size alone. And you mentioned, <laughs> um, just cycling back to level up, the grip strength. Mm -hmm. 
in terms of a proxy to determine how healthy an individual's muscle mass is. So if, if you have a trained individual and they potentially have high levels of strength, how do you know if that muscle is of good quality if they're, say, like they're injured quite frequently? Um, so so it, it, it's kind of a, a, a tough one with trained individuals. And a lot of these studies that we do are in individuals who are untrained. Ah, okay. So, but generally, if you see a strong muscle, um, and if it is in a, a trained individual, it's going to be a healthy muscle. Okay. So, like one one example is if you look at some bodybuilders, and you can say, all right, you might say, okay, there's a bodybuilder they've got big muscles. Are they the best quality? <clears throat> well, they probably are going to be really, really good quality muscles. Like you can assume that they're going to have very, very little fat infiltration. They're going to have very, very little. Um, of this kind of buildup of connective tissue within them because these people are so active. Like their lifestyle is is is, is designed to kind of build and improve that, that muscle quality. Um, there might be other aspects uh, in some bodybuilders that might um, reduce their, their longevity or kind of um, uh, increase their risk of certain certain conditions in the future. But in general, muscle quality is quite good in anybody who is relatively or or who is quite active. So in, in athletes, um, people who do a lot of a lot of weight training it's going to be high quality muscle generally when we see lower quality muscle it's in individuals who just don't do, do any exercise at all and the easiest way to improve muscle quality is to exercise just to get moving and then that comes with <laughs> a reduction in chronic illness potentially yeah so one one thing i'm very very cautious of is you know when when somebody asks like okay if i start lifting weights is that going to you know give me another 20 years of life and is it going to does that mean i'm not going to get heart disease or not going to get diabetes and i'm like i have no idea because yeah. all, all, all of these conditions are so multifactorial and all in science all we can talk about is reducing risk so for example i, I can say that if you train if you exercise regularly you are reducing your risk of diabetes and you're reducing your risk of, of heart disease does that mean you're immune no not at all Absolutely. It's like a preventative measure, isn't it? You're doing everything you can with your abilities to then support you in the best possible way. So what are the sort of things that we can get in terms of like, we know muscle mass is the biggest site of glucose disposal, therefore the reduction in potentially type 2 diabetes? Yeah, so there's there's a lot of conditions. Like if you have a, we, there's quite a number of studies that have looked at the association between uh, muscle mass and let's say chronic conditions. So we're talking about a reduction in the risk of heart disease. Um, and this is like between, let's say, people who have low amounts of muscle and people who have higher amounts of muscle in the general population. Okay. So when we're talking in the in the general population, nobody's looking like Arnold. So you don't need to look like Arnold Schwarzenegger to, to get these benefits. You just need to put on a little bit more than the, the average and you're doing well for yourself. Um, so we're, we're talking about uh, heart disease, reduced risk of diabetes, reduced risk of osteoporosis. And one of the, the reasons for that is because um, when we when we exercise, when we, especially when we do weight-bearing exercise, um, our muscle fibers tug on our bones because they're attached to our bones. And they tug on those bones. And there are cells within our bones which can detect those forces of tension um, applied by the muscle. And that causes reconstruction of the bone and kind of development of the bone and allows the bone to get stronger. And actually... Um, some of the, let's say, the highest bone densities that have ever been recorded have been in powerlifters because they're continuously putting huge amounts of force onto their muscles, which translates over to their bones 
and allows their bones to become exceptionally dense um, and strong. So that having having you know a good high bone density reduces your risk of osteoporosis or brittle bones and reduces your risk of having a fracture should you know you ever have a fall. Um, so that's another one. Um, then obviously there's the reduced risk of frailty, which I, I, I mentioned earlier, which is a, a big one I'm kind of hoping to avoid as, as I go through my whole aging process right now. Um, uh, there is a reduced risk of metabolic syndrome. So metabolic syndrome <clears throat> is uh, a condition that is becoming very, very common um, these days. Uh, and basically it's a group of different conditions altogether. So for example, it's always associated with some form of insulin resistance. Um, and then you'll usually have uh, a lot of um, body fat that accumulates around your, your midsection. So um, having a, a large waist circumference is one of the other symptoms of it. Uh, you can also have dyslipidemia, which means uh, high blood triglycerides or low HDL cholesterol. Um, and it can have a huge amount of other negative effects on your body. It can lead to conditions like chronic kidney disease. It can lead to, lead to uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which is an accumulation of fat within your liver. And we, we know that having a higher level of muscle seems to reduce your risk of developing that condition. Um, and we also see that there's an association with, you know, better cognitive function yeah. as we have more muscle. And that's probably not exclusively due to having muscle itself, but more due to the fact that people who have higher amounts of muscle exercise more. And we know that exercise is hugely beneficial for our brain health. We know it reduces our risk of depression, which is uh, fantastic. And that's Potentially in, in older adults, that's potentially due to the fact that if we get older and we become frail and we're unable to do all those normal daily activities, it means we're probably less likely to go out to be able to go out and see our friends or do things that we really, really enjoy doing. And that's going to have a major uh, impact on somebody's mental health. Um, and then there's also a link between lower levels of cancer as well. And actually, um, there are some protocols nowadays that uh, use uh, resistance training in cancer patients during their treatment to help fortify their bodies and help them get through the, the whole um, chemotherapy or radiotherapy or whatever they're going through at the time because it can take quite a toll on the body. So kind of building up uh, your muscular reserves during that or before that process can be beneficial. Wow, that's incredible. And there's a link between, uh, do you know much about the menopause in terms of muscle mass? I, I do. The, so with because with i menopause. see this especially with females and the the, the menopause uh, the clients that i potentially that i have at the minute they're the cardio bunnies and and they really struggle to get on board with like muscle mass and, and resistance training and then transitioning through the menopause so i think the more we can talk about that especially because there is still some stigma around the menopause the more to empower women in particular yeah, no, absolutely. And, and it's something I, I've done a few, a few times in the past. I've, I've done a few seminars on it because I think, and this is kind of going back to my com comments at the start where I was talking about people don't really think about the future. And I think if you speak to your average 20-year-old woman, uh, they'll know very, very little about the menopause or they'll care very, very little about the menopause. But um, like, like I say, kind of at the start of my own talks is... Uh, everybody here is going to, in this room, be it a man or a woman, is going to be directly affected by menopause. Women, because they'll go through it, and men, because they'll be living with women who go through it yes. at some point in their lives. Um, so what we know uh, about menopause is that there's obviously a massive change in hormonal and a massive, like genuinely massive drop 
in the levels of circulating estrogen that are in the body. And we know that estrogen is a, a quite a potent anabolic hormone and ca carries out some of the similar functions that testosterone carries out in men, in women. And because of that drop, we do tend to see um, a decline in muscle mass in women around the time of menopause. Um, but that's kind of like just an increase in what's already happening because we know that uh, muscle loss can start as early as you know the, the 30s um, in, in men and women, and it just progresses uh, quite slowly along. And then when we get to our 50s, um, it starts to progress a little bit more. And it's around that time that obviously women are going through the menopause. Um, and one of the, the reasons that, hap that that happens as well, and that women are particularly affected by it, is because menopause can lead to a huge amount of knock-on uh, symptoms, particularly like around hot flashes and night sweats. And one thing that a lot of women in menopause kind of report is disturbed sleep. Mm -hmm. And when you're suffering from disturbed sleep, almost everything else in your life will suffer for that. And that's going to be your exercise habits will suffer and your eating habits will suffer. And we know that, you know, people who are kind of suffering from that, that impaired sleep tends to kind of seek out more food. They've got a greater appetite, but they, they seek out more uh, let's say a hedonic reward with food. So like really, really tasty, high fat, high carb foods um, uh, to kind of just feel a little better because of the, the lack of sleep. But they also tend to avoid, um, you know, foods that they know are beneficial for their health, like, you know, eating more vegetables and they tend to avoid exercise or do less of it. So you've got this horrible, like perfect storm of, of you know, poor sleep, which itself is detrimental to muscle mass lack of the main anabolic hormone in women and then all of these poor habits that come from the the poor sleep as well that can lead to this progressive loss of muscle mass but also a progressive gain in, in body weight as well so having muscle mass supports some mitigation of the symptoms would i be correct so 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 what i would say is those symptoms are going to are potentially going to happen to a lot of women it's quite common um and i think what women should be doing is try to mitigate the loss of, of muscle mass by engaging more in resistance exercise in, in any form of exercise in general. But I, I, I'll say the same thing to men. It's just, you know, there's, there's different hormonal aspects to how it happens in men and women, but kind of at the end of the day, my, my recommendations are just like get some weights and a little bit of protein and <laughs> hopefully it works out. It is, it is that, isn't it? Like lift some weights and eat a little bit of protein, but many people struggle to take the action around going to the gym and eating enough protein. And, and as we alluded mm -hmm. to earlier, I think diet culture has a lot to answer for in terms of a lot of limiting beliefs that people hold around potentially going to the gym and eating protein. But what does the research say then about how much resistance training we need to be doing? Like baseline. Sorry. So it doesn't say a huge amount. We actually, it, it, it's very, very interesting that we don't have a huge amount of research that kind of tells us the ideal amount of resistance exercise that people should be doing. But we do have, let's say, the guidelines around physical activity. And we know that doing some form of muscle strengthening activity twice a week is, is beneficial. And I would say, I would say to somebody... And I'm very, because I work with individuals as well, like I, I really try to meet people where they are. Mm -hmm. And I I think that's really, really important for everybody that, you know, you, you can't like just say to somebody who's never set foot inside in a gym in, in their life, it's like, okay, we're going to be going to the gym five days a week from now on. 
getting up at six o'clock in the morning um, and we're going to basically, you know, destroy you with every set that we do, like go to failure and everything. That That's a really, really quick way to get somebody to hate you and to hate exercise for the rest of their life. So it's it's a matter of kind of saying, okay, where can we start? Yeah. If somebody is, is inactive, anything is better than nothing. Simple as that. Like we've got studies that show in, in sedentary women, doing a walking exercise program where they're literally just walking a few times a week increases muscle protein synthesis. That's all it takes. But obviously we want to progress. So we, we try with one day a week, see how that goes, then progress to two days a week, which I think is a really, really good minimum for people to have. And then advance from there. You know, if we can get people in, you know, three days a week or four days a week, it, it depends on what, what somebody does and how much they love the gym and how much they enjoy it and, and a lot of other factors. But, um, yeah. Like I, I would, I would say if somebody wanted to go five days a week, I'd be like, I'd be absolutely fantastic. Great. But is it just weight training then that we need to be doing or is it a combination oh, of weight training and cardiovascular training? I, it, it is. So th- this is a really popular question because like people love to get a, an either or answer and <laughs> and generally in science we don't have that like people are like should i do low carb should i do low carb or should i do low fat and i'm like oh where to start um yeah. but but like I, i'm going to give the, the the terrible answer and say people should be doing combination of both um absolutely so we we, we know that one of the best predictors of um uh reduced cardiovascular risk is what's called our VO2 max. And that's the, the ability of our body to take in oxygen and, and, and transport it around our body while we're, uh, while we're exercising, okay? So it's basically aerobic fitness is one of the best predictors. Um, and I really, really encourage people to do some form of cardio regularly. Um, and that can take many, many forms. Like, so the, the recommendations for it are about uh, 30 minutes of moderate intensity activity, um, five days a week. Okay. So a, a total of 150 days, uh, 50 minutes a, a week. Um, and that can take many forms. Like, so for example, I, I, if somebody wants to cycle to work, brilliant, do that. If somebody wants to go for a half hour jog every day, do that. If somebody wants to do sprint training. And, and I'm a big fan of sprint training just because I think it's a really good way of really pushing your cardiovascular system and, and really improving um your your aerobic capacity and your vo2 max in a short amount of time um if somebody wants to do that fantastic um and if somebody just wants to play like you know five aside a couple of days a week and you know uh take their dog out for a very brisk walk it's cool too again it's anything really that fits your commitments your lifestyles on a very individual level outside of the perception of what you believe you should be doing with this wild 6am training every day and running every evening yeah, absolutely. And, and I think, you know, that is a problem that we have, especially with social media, because we have <clears throat> certain individuals who will, you know, claim to have very ideal uh, lifestyles when it, and schedules. And, you know, they'll have these wonderful morning routines, you know, where they're, you know, they wake up at 2 a.m. and, you know, they've done more than all of us have done before 2.30 a.m., um, and, like, that's not real. Like, uh, you know, that's, you know, just, like, puffing your chest on on, on Instagram to, to look good. But it, it can put people off. It's like, I'm, I'm never going to do that. I'm not getting up. I'm not getting up at two o'clock in the morning. It's like, too flipping right. I'm not going to get up at two o'clock in the morning either. I'm, I'm staying in bed as long as I possibly can. Yeah. It's, it's, but we need to kind of help people understand that, you know, you can fit these things into your lifestyle, even if they don't appear to be the way that we see on, on social media, you know, and yeah, it, it, it's, it's a tough battle. 
because um yeah there's a lot of crap out there and and it is i think you mentioned earlier in terms of like the industry that we're in i think more so i do think things are changing but whether that's just the echo chamber that i expose myself to and i've turned down that noise in terms of what i see on social media but then i still get it sent to me from clients and actually i just had a client send it to me earlier today and another coach online had taken a picture of a bikini and put on her fridge stop eating you and then damaging words and I was like oh okay so that's how we stop ourselves from eating because we're getting in a bikini and seeking that validation and then you're then trying to help clients get on board with going to the gym and exercising and eating enough protein for longevity and it's like well where where, where's the middle ground here um, this industry is, and insert whatever word you want to put there at the end, um, but yeah, it, it is. Yeah. Um, just cycling back to the VO2 max, um, forgive me, I recall you mentioning at level up in terms of like risk of death, and I don't want to talk about that. I don't want to bring on like a massive dark cloud, but can you just explain a little bit more the VO2 max and how your fitness level and the relative risk of death strongest com- yeah. predictor in, in comparison to some other factors that you mentioned yeah so so with the with max like i said it's our ability of our uh our combined cardiovascular system so our lungs to uptake oxygen and our hearts to pump that oxygen around to our body okay and to do it efficiently and <clears throat> to to improve vo2 max we generally need to do some form of moderate to intense activity um for a sustained amount of Okay, and generally, the more intense the activity, the, the greater effect it's going to have on uh, on your cardiovascular system. And it works in a number of ways um, to to help improve our health and reduce our risk of of our risk of more our mortality risk, so our risk of death. But I think one of the main ways it does this is by reducing uh, cardiovascular risk, and that's because the main killer worldwide is cardiovascular disease. It's it is. Um, Oh God, I can't even think of the, the the numbers off the top of my head, but I think it was like uh, 18 million people uh, a year die of cardiovascular disease. Um, and it's it's just so prevalent that if you can reduce cardiovascular disc risk, you're reducing mortality risk considerably. <clears throat> One of the ways it does is by strengthening the heart itself. So when we do intense activity, our heart obviously pumps really, really hard. And the heart is a muscle and the heart does get bigger and stronger the more it works point obviously um so that's one way it does but it also uh by doing a, a lot of kind of intense activity we have major effects on the rest of our cardiovascular system which is our, our veins um one of those is by having effects on the endothelial cells that line our blood vessels so um when our our, our endothelial the endothelial layer within our blood vessels is so important because it helps us react to everything that's going on in our bodies but it reacts to uh, our exercise as well, because when we're exercising, the heart is pumping more blood and it is <clears throat> sending blood through our veins at a faster rate. And that faster rate generates what's called shear stress. And that's detected by our endothelial cells. And when they detect that, they release something called nitric oxide. Uh, well, they, they release um, an enzyme that releases nitric oxide. And nitric oxide is just a gas, but it allows the smooth muscle that surrounds our, our, our veins to relax and expand and get bigger. So we've got a vein that might be this size initially, but when we start exercising, because of the effects of that uh, nitric oxide, we get we see that vein getting bigger like that. And what that does is it allows more blood 
if you go through over time. So that's one of the benefits. <clears throat> but another benefit then is cardiovascular remodeling. So we see uh, a remodeling over time, we see that the veins actually expand to be larger full stop. Um, and when they're larger full stop, that means that we continuously have more blood flowing through our system. Uh, it means our heart can take a bit of a break because our, our heart, which is now stronger, pumps, it pumps less, but it pumps more blood at the same time. So your system is just much more efficient. So uh, that's one way it does it. Also, the, the, the simple act of doing exercise, moving our muscles, contracting them to, to, to go for a jog or to lift weights, causes our muscle cells to become more insulin sensitive because of a, uh, a transporter called GLUT4 within yeah. our muscle cells. So basically a, that GLUT4 gets sent to the surface of our muscle cells and that allows us to take more glucose out of our blood take it into the muscles where they need it for energy production. And that means that, you know, we're better at managing glucose where we're more insulin sensitive long-term and we're less likely to develop something like diabetes. So yeah, there's a, a lot of different ways. Uh, we, we say like exercise has pleiotropic effects. So it, it works in an enormous amount of ways and like more ways than I'm even aware of. Um, it, it's, it's really shocking because I, I have a lot of colleagues who work in a different, different aspects of, of muscle and exercise health here at the university. And uh, like, there's people who know stuff about stuff that I don't even know exists. So it, it, it's really cool. <laughs> and so what if you have potentially got um, like heart disease or some heart problems? Is it worth doing anything? Absolutely. Um, so I, I work in, in cardiac rehab, which is a uh, it's a system for people who've had a some sort of a cardiac event. So often for times for people who've had a heart attack. And uh, a lot of people don't realize that there's, there is a system called cardiac rehab. And what it does is it's basically predominantly an exercise program at people who've had a cardiac event. And the idea is to help improve their cardiovascular fitness over time by getting them to do more exercise and hopefully get them to, to take up exercise habits long term. Um, and it is hugely beneficial. We, we know that, um, <clears throat> we know that uh, endurance exercise, for example, is actually better than getting a stent. So a stent is one of the most common ways of treating blocked arteries to the heart. It's, and it's basically where you send this, this little mesh. You, it's, it, it's almost brutal when you think about how it works, but basically you enter through a vein, usually in the arm, and you shove a, uh, a little wire through the vein until you get to the part of the heart that is blocked. And then you've got this little mesh wrapped around the tip of the, the wire and you expand it with the balloon to make it bigger. And you remove the balloon and pull it back out. And basically you've got this mesh that's keeping your veins open. That's one of the most common treatments for um, blocked arteries. And we know that endurance exercise is actually more effective than that, which means it's also cheaper um, and it reduces somebody's uh, risk of having another event in the future as well. Wow, that's incredible. Mm. And that's what you do, your cardiac rehab is that part of your coaching or is that at the university no so the cardiac rehab is part of my research so my uh, phd was all on the effects of resistance exercise in cardiac rehab patients so i'm still running um, an intervention study in cardiac rehab patients so i go to cardiac rehab centers i recruit people from there and i get them on a special diet and i get them lifting weights in the gym and i measure a number of different uh, different outcomes Wow, that's awesome. So in terms of diet protocols then that support the retention, <laughs> the growth of muscle, what, what would you recommend? 
So a, a lot of people want me to say just like eat protein nonstop. Um, and I do talk about protein a lot. Um, and I talk about it because most people don't consume enough, um, particularly women and particularly older women um, who are probably the people who can most benefit from it. Um, I do think that uh, we should have more of a focus on protein, but uh, I, I think we probably don't need to be consuming as much as many of the bros would like to um, to claim that we need. So uh, I'm kind of a little bit more moderate in what I recommend. I'm more of a aim for 1.2 to 1.6 grams per kilogram body weight. Um, 500 grams a day then? <laughs> no, not 500. Funnily enough, um, yeah, so you're not kind of like smashing um, ribeye steaks, you know, a few times a day. Um, so <clears throat> with that, we do know in older people, especially older people who are not physically active, that they've got something called anabolic resistance. And what that means is that their body does not react to anabolic stimuli um, the same way that a younger person does. And anabolic stimuli, there, there are two types. There's exercise and there's protein. So like the best example of that is if you give a 20-year-old um, about 20 grams of whey protein, which is a very high-quality protein, you'll stimulate something called muscle protein synthesis very, very robustly. You'll probably, you'll, you'll probably maximize muscle protein synthesis. If you give that same dose to somebody who's in their 70s, you will only stimulate muscle protein synthesis half as much. But if you give them 40 grams of protein, you will almost get as much muscle protein synthesis as you got in the young group with 20 grams. So older people generally, especially the older you get, you potentially need up to twice as much as a younger person does. So kind of my general recommendation for older adults is kind of aiming for about 30 to 40 grams of protein with every meal with high quality protein. And that's not easy for a lot of older people. So this is where things like, you know, protein shakes and a lot of these protein puddings or protein um, uh, yogurts can come in handy as kind of like something to supplement somebody's diet with. Because I'm, I'm certainly not going to be recommending to any of my participants or any of my clients uh, who are older, okay, you need to start taking protein shakes. So, so you see like a, a load of 70 year olds walking down the street, like with their shakers going crazy. I don't, I want people to have normal diets. So I'll say, hey, your normal diet is like this. Your breakfast has this much protein. How can we increase that? Okay, let's have a, um, let's add a protein yogurt to that. And thankfully these days, there are so many options when it comes to getting protein. I like like really good quality dairy protein that it's much easier for people to do that now this, these days. Absolutely. And what's your thoughts on um, including more plant-based foods into a diet to support uh, reduction in cardiovascular? Is there anything in terms of the, the research and where that sits? Oh yeah, absolutely. It, it, it's huge. So my, my main focus within um, my research is kind of looking at blood lipids and their response in relation to, to muscle mass. Um, but I also look at other dietary factors. Um, I was actually, last week, I was at the, the European Atherosclerosis Society, um, which is a conference which was in, in Germany. And, and what we were looking at was basically all of the research around how our blood lipids change with, with you know, different, different factors. And a, a really interesting piece of research came out from one of the, the attendees that was there, it just came out last week, I think it was, um, looking at plant-based diets and uh, blood lipids, specifically looking at uh, LDL cholesterol and what I consider to be one of the best markers of uh, long-term cardiovascular risk, which is ApoB. Um, and it basically showed that higher intakes of our higher adherence to plant-based diets reduces risk of like reduces somebody's LDL. It reduces ApoB, which is highly beneficial for, for long-term health. 
Um, with my research, I use a Mediterranean style diet. It's a high protein Mediterranean style diet, which is, it features a huge amount of plant protein um, and not just plant protein, but plants full stop. So I, I, there's a huge amount of, if you look into why a Mediterranean diet works, there, there's so many different ways. Again, it has pleiotropic effects in the body. Um, and I think getting a wide variety of plants, just like in a Mediterranean diet, can help other people have those same beneficial long, you know, kind of long-term effects on, on reducing their cardiovascular risk as well. Nice. Yeah, absolutely. And getting enough, so getting enough protein, getting enough plants and lifting weights supports you long-term. Absolutely. So if there's one thing that somebody's struggling with, and that is just taking action to exercise, perhaps they are in a larger phenotype and they're just now stuck in a rut, what is one thing that you would recommend to support them? I would say find something that you enjoy that will get you moving. Um, and that doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, like it doesn't have to be going to the gym. It doesn't have to be going out jogging. It might be, right, I really like taking the dog for a walk, right? Let's start doing that more. Or um, it, it might be, uh, I like playing football, you know, with my kids or with my grandkids or something like that. Or there's a, a, a group of women who uh, they do this exercise class and I know them all and we're really good friends and I feel comfortable around them. Um, go do that. Yeah. But find something you enjoy. It's absolutely essential. I think it's one of the best ways to get into it because if, if you start exercise and you, you already dislike exercise and you say, okay, right, I'm gonna, I, 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 hate, I hate the idea of going to the gym and you go to the gym, your chances of sticking with it are, are, are pretty slim. Absolutely. And I think that what you just said then, if you find something you enjoy, you find something you can enjoy for the long term instead of just doing something for six weeks, for 12 weeks. Instead, you're doing it for as long as you possibly can. Mm. And I think going in with that man that mentality is important as well, because um, I think a lot of people these days are kind of like, oh, I, I need to get ready for my holiday in four weeks. <laughs> I'm going to start I'm going to start my exercise regime now and then on go on holidays and I'll never you know exercise again until or weeks before my next holiday yeah and it is it's just that all or nothing mindset isn't it and frankly it's damaging to our relationships with our bodies and exercise and nutrition absolutely yeah oh well that's a perfect place to wrap up i cannot thank you enough so where can people find you in if they're interested in coaching or learning more about your incredible research um, I, I usually just direct people to my my Instagram. Um, so like I'm Dr. Richie Kerwin uh, on on Instagram. Um, easiest way to get in touch with me there, uh, like just send me a message. I'm always happy to, to speak with people. I've got a website as well. It's Be More Nutrition. I rarely update anything, but like you can check it out too. Uh, and I got a I've got a Twitter again account as well because I'm as a researcher, we're supposed to have one and we're supposed to be very active on Twitter. And I just I I, I can't manage more than Instagram. It's just uh, and, and I'm barely managing my Instagram as it is. So um, yeah. you still haven't got you on TikTok. <laughs> oh, tell me about it. I actually I opened a TikTok account just to download bad videos, uh, so I can you know occasionally uh, do a mock up and you know just tell people this is terrible information. <laughs> oh, brilliant! Well, thank you so much for your time, Richie. Thanks very much, Rebecca. Really thank appreciate you. you inviting me on.